What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Making the Turn, the premier green industry podcast that highlights professionals across many areas, including golf course management, sports turf, sales, business, education, landscaping, and more. Making the Turn is hosted by me, BJ Parker. I've spent nearly 25 years in the green industry, mostly as a golf course superintendent, and now I want to bring the knowledge and insight from myself and the many people I've met and continue to meet along the way. Making the Turn will provide valuable content for those looking to learn from others, gain useful tips and tricks, and be better in their daily lives. You can find Making the Turn on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe. It helps keep the podcast growing and getting better. Thanks for listening, and welcome to another episode of the Making the Turn podcast. What is going on, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, BJ Parker, and I appreciate you joining me. And uh, today's uh, episode is going to be a recording of a seminar that I uh, recorded in the at the 2020 Tennessee Turfgrass Conference and Show it was with Anthony Piapi, and it was called Uncover- Uncovering your, the Architectural History of Your Golf Course. There was a lot of cool information uh, that he was uh, able to share with us, and he talks about some of the things you can do going back and looking at the history of your club and some of the, the different things from an architectural standpoint, not only for the course but the clubhouse and the surroundings. So really think you're going to enjoy this. Really think it was an awesome um, uh, comp, uh, seminar. He uh, Anthony does a lot of things for the golf world. He's a golf writer. He's an author. Wrote many books. Um, he's also the uh, currently the executive director of the Seth Rayner Society. He's also a podcast host for TurfNet, uh, talking renovation and other things. And he was gracious enough to uh, come to the uh, Nashville and uh, Murfreesboro and um, share his thoughts on uh, the architectural side of things. And so. Um, I know you're really going to enjoy it, so appreciate you joining me. Thanks for listening, and enjoy Mr. Anthony Piapi. Uh, Anthony's a golf writer, historian, and golf archaeologist. I love that word. That's, that's great to have in there. Uh, his most recent book he's written is The Finest Nines, The Best the best nine-hole golf courses in North America. Uh, he's also written a lot of publications uh, for the USGA website, Golf Course Architecture, Lynx Magazine, uh, Golf Week, just to name a few. Currently, he's the executive director of the Seth Rayner Society, and he also does a podcast with TurfNet, so it's a great podcast just on renovation and things going on uh, in architecture. So I couldn't think of a better person to open up our architecture blog than Anthony, so take it away. and. I'm curious to hear all you say. Thank you. You can all hear me with the mic? Just want to make sure. Um, before I get going, I get to tell you a story. I flew into Baltimore from Hartford, and then I flew from Baltimore to Nashville, which I didn't realize at the time I apparently went to another country, because yesterday uh, at the reception, Sam Adams was listed as an imported beer. So I just thought I was still in the United States, but apparently not. Um, we're going to talk about uncovering the architectural history of your golf course. I'm going to move through a lot of stuff kind of quickly. If you have questions, stop me while we're going, if you want to, because I don't want to have to go back through a bunch of slides, and there's going to be some uh, certain things you probably want to talk about at the moment, so feel free to raise your hand, and we'll go from there. Um, we'll get going right away. And the reason to uncover the history of your golf course, this is the first one's going to be pretty basic for you guys. The proof of the original intent of the designers uh, we know that looking at old aerials can help you uh, make your case to remove trees, 
restore greens to their original size, uh, restore bunkers or remove bunkers. This is, um, this is in Connecticut. Um, that's a 34 aerial. That's a 2018 aerial. They've obviously removed a lot of trees, but the proof really is, is that there's, there's a huge difference in this golf course. And you guys need these kind of photos and this kind of information to show the membership what you're really trying to do and you're not making it up on your own. You're basing this in fact and you're basing this on history and the original intent of the architect. And that's really, for me, the biggest reason to kind of, from your standpoint, to do the history. Um, in the event of a renovation or restoration, the club has a guide for the architect, and that includes the clubhouse. A lot of you guys may not realize until you start doing some research, but you may have a prominent, maybe just in the area, a prominent architect, and messing with the clubhouse is as bad as messing with the golf course. Um, you can uncover some interesting information that will help people who think that the golf course doesn't have its own identity or unique identity. Uh, by looking at this stuff, you can find things that will show them um, that the club does have, a, does have an interesting history. And this is one that I found about Hartford Golf Club in Connecticut. This is the 1912 Massachusetts versus Connecticut um, team, team amateur championship, uh, state versus state. And a guy by the name of Francis Wimet played at Hartford Golf Club in 1912. It was the best match of the day. He, uh, there's the actual scores of what they shot. Nobody really knew who Wimet was at the time. A year later, he wins the US Open. Hartford Golf Club, which has a pretty good history, doesn't realize that Francis Wimet had played on their golf course until I came up with that. So this idea that you have no history or nobody famous was here, or there's no reason to, to laud your golf course can easily be uh, proven wrong just with a little bit of looking through in, uh, in newspapers and other sites I'll show you. And you can help prevent meddling with the course or historical structures by showing that what you have is what was intended. And that's really important. People think that um, the course may have changed when it hadn't changed, or what's there has been there for a million years, and it hasn't been there for a million years. And from an agronomic standpoint, again, with trees and bunkers and greens, especially trees, uh, that's an important point. Some basic rules, and you're gonna do some research we're gonna be talking about. Learn how to spell names correctly. And I don't mean to be funny about this, but you're gonna run into some funny names, especially back in the early, if you're into the 1800s, if you're into the early 1900s, you're gonna get some uh, odd spellings on what are kind of common names. So make sure when you're going through, you may have a couple of different spellings or three or four different spellings for people that you're dealing with who are part of your golf course and who you're using as kind of a, um, a touchstone to find some of your history. Learn how to spell names incorrectly. You're not gonna believe how often this happens. Uh, Donald Ross never learned how to spell Minicata from the Minicata Club. It's completely wrong on every single one of his plans. If you can spell it incorrectly, they can spell it incorrectly. That means when you're doing searches, you have to learn how to spell your golf club or names incorrectly. The worst case scenario that I know of is Shinnecasset Club at Donald Ross course in uh, Connecticut. He has 12 wrong spellings of his golf course because there's too many N's or too few N's and too many T's and too many C's, and, but he has 12 different wrong spellings that he's found in national public or regional publications. Um, a lot of times, and this is baffling, clubs will forget that they had a club history. The older clubs, it was very common for there to be a 25th history, 25th anniversary history, and a 50th anniversary, and then it gets lost. People aren't aware of that. Just kind of dig around, and there might be even just a pamphlet or uh, a, a small, Softbound club history. Take a look. Don't believe if somebody tells you there is no club history. 
And this is, are you guys familiar with Sean Tully? He's at the Metal Club out in California. He's a fantastic um, uh, Alistair McKenzie historian. Sean Tully's rule is uh, he doesn't do oral. Don't believe oral histories. People get it wrong all the time when you, when you, I have a written oral history of Minicata Club that's completely wrong from what happened. Uh, a friend of mine lives in Massachusetts. There's an oral history of the town she lives in that talks about the early golf course that existed there and how when it folded, it was uh, the, the, the seed for the golf course that exists in town now. That's completely wrong because the golf course that exists has their history back to day one and there was no connection through the two golf courses. You want to listen to what people say, but it's really, it's, I, I'm hesitant to ever believe one person's story being correct unless I can prove it. I'll listen to it, I'll take notes, but there's no way I'm believing one person telling me a story. Um, and this is gonna show you how clubs can lose their history. This is from the 50th anniversary book of the Country Club of Fairfield. This is a Seth Rayner design. That's a Seth Rayner drawing that's in the 50th anniversary book. This is the only drawing I've ever seen where he didn't finish holes, and the drawing was given to the club. Those are just outlines. This is Robert Trent Jones's um, abomination in the 1950s, 1957, when he shredded the golf course. The club doesn't know where this drawing is. I interviewed for the job to write the get it, and I'd, they'd send me their 50th anniversary, and I asked them where this was because it needs to be preserved, and the club has no idea. So in 50 years or 49 years, they lost that drawing. So digging around and finding stuff and looking in books, even on, on the club, will help you with your history. And I'm not even sure they know where this drawing is. And this is a great drawing to show people how, how this, a lot of these changes occurred. Isn't the original golf course, even though they believe it. Because it's been there for 50 years, or fi 1957. So it's been there since 1957, and people think this is the golf course. But they've lost this drawing, so they had no idea what's, what was originally there. Once you start to do this, if there's no club historian, if nobody's done history, you're going to become the de facto club historian. People are going to talk to you, talk to you as if you are, um, which is good because a club needs, if they recognize you as a historian, that means the club is thinking in the right direction. That they want, they want there are people in the club and you don't need a lot, you just need a core that, that, un, that understand you're trying to save the history. And you may now become the, the person that they're going to turn things over to. I, um, this summer, the, the, the uh, New Haven Country Club in Connecticut, a member walked in and said to the pro who's been doing some digging, I don't know if you want this, but if you don't want it, please throw it out. And he handed him the 1923 Willie Park plans for the golf course. Nobody has any idea why this guy has it. They don't know when it got to him. They've never even known about the existence of the plans, and there's Willie Park's plans. And the only reason this pro got it is because he just started doing some digging on the golf course, and he wanted to see what he could find. This is a tough one for a lot of people when you're doing history, and I run into this a lot on the internet. People want to, people want to believe that because they've, they've, they are going in a direction, they, they want to make a conclusion before they get to it. If you have letters where people are writing back and forth to an architect, let's just say Donald Ross, and people come to you and say, well, are we a Donald Ross golf course, and you don't have an invoice, or you don't have Ross on site, or you don't have any solid uh, proof that he was there. The answer has to be, I don't know. People want to jump to conclusions now all the time, and they back themselves in the corners, and they're proven wrong later on when the actual history comes about. So be, Billy, be willing to say that. Uh, this, is a, this is one of the real problems I'm having with, with, especially on Twitter. 
there's this, there's this idea that golf course history and historians exist in a vacuum by themselves, and we're going to play by our own rules. They don't understand that there's historians in other avenues of life, everything from the history of philosophy to, to the history of Ronald Reagan. And people on Twitter are making up their own rules. A perfect example is the guy who runs uh, uh, the, um, the Fried Egg website has now decided that Yale Golf Course is 1923 because that's when construction began. Well, and if it's not 1923, it's 1925 because that's when they first started playing the golf course. The golf course opened in 1926. We have reams of information to prove that. The golf course is a 1926 golf course. That's how you decide when a golf course is, exists, is when they have the formal opening or the club allows the membership to play. It's not when somebody starts pushing dirt. And it's the same thing with a building. The Empire State Building is the Empire State Building the year that it opened, not the year that they started digging the foundation. So people start making up these rules and they start confusing it. And so you have to kind of stick with the basic rules. One caveat to that, though, is I've had this discussion a lot of when a club existed, not the golf course, and that's up to the club. The Minnecotta Club decided that they're 19, 1899, because that's when their founding members sat down at a table and decided they wanted a golf course. They have notes from the meeting. It wasn't official until the next year, but that's great, 1899. Other clubs don't do it until they start charging members. Oh, we got our first members, they paid their dues, that's when we begin. Clubs can decide when they became the clubs, but the golf courses are the golf courses when they open. Not when people were playing on it, not when there was guys out there, you know, even if they have a number on what they shot. When the golf course opens and the members are playing, that's when the golf course is. That's one of the basic rules. We get that all the time. The other one is, and I run into this with a photographer who posts golf courses, is he'll list a place like Sleepy Hollow as a Charles Blair McDonald golf course. Charles Blair McDonald designed that golf course. There are six holes on that golf course that aren't his. A third of the golf course aren't his. You have to go through all the architects. It's a Charles Blair McDonald. Thomas Winton made some changes. They sold off land. A.W. Tillinghast came in. Reese Jones was there. George Botta was there. And in the last three weeks, a guy that I researched with uncovered that Seth Rayner was there making tweaks. I mean, if you, sold, if you sold somebody a Fender Stratocaster and told them it was a 1963 Fender Stratocaster and two of the pickups weren't original, he'd beat the crap out of you and take you to court. So you have to stick with the real history. Be very precise the way historians do. I'm not judging Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow isn't a Charles Blair McDonald golf course. A third of the golf course belongs to somebody else. So just kind of stick with those rules. Just don't make them up as you go. And be inclusive in your information. Even if it kind of takes you away from what you think the story is or the club wants the story to be, include everything. I don't think Sleepy Hollow wants to admit that Thomas Winton designed four of their holes or five of their holes, but that's okay. As the historian, let them do with the information what they want, but, but keep that information. Get that information and keep it, because somewhere along the line, there are going to be people that care. And, and, and clubs, when I wrote the history for the Minnecotta Club, they wanted to, I wrote just about the golf course, they wanted to know where the course deviated and why. So in the future, when you read this book, you can see why Ron Pritchard restored it to a Donald Ross golf course, why they took out the Joe Finger bunkers, why they took down trees. So grab that information, hold on to it, and somewhere along the line, it's going to count. We're still going to continue to continue the basic rules of research. This is the most important one. Just because you've read it once does not mean it's true. Fairland Golf Course, last for Rainer, golf architect dies after sudden stroke. Everything about what I just read to you was wrong. Fairland is not Rainer's last golf course, and he didn't die of a stroke. 
He designed two courses we know of in Hawaii after, after uh, Fairland. Well, there may be more because we're talking, he was, he was, he was on site in October. He died before January. There's long train rides in between and there's time. He could have designed 10 more golf courses, but we know that that's not the last golf course. Unfortunately, this has been passed on, and this, this has become the, the, the story that the, the club tells, but it's not right. So just because you read it once doesn't mean it's right. This is another one from Seth Rayner's obituary, talking about the golf courses he built when he died. Uh, he built golf courses for the California University. No, he didn't. We don't know where this came from. We don't have any indication that he's ever been there. Unfortunately, it was an Associated Press uh, obituary. This went all over the country. All these people believe that he designed a golf course at California University. George Bottle put it in his book, The Evangelist of Golf. There's absolutely no proof other than this one line in one small obituary that he was there. So just because you read something, I mean, you, there's going to be stuff you're going to be like, that makes sense, it's probably true. Keep looking to back up what you find. Keep looking to add, add weight to your, the tale that you're telling. This is from Charles Blair McDonald's book, Scotland's Gift, which came out after Rayner died. This is a quote on Rayner. And since 1917, he has built or reconstructed some 100, 150 golf courses, which I have never seen. Sad to relate, he died at his prime in Palm Beach in 1925 while building a golf course for Paris Springer. This is Charles Blair McDonald. This is the mentor of Seth Rayner. Everything that's up there is wrong. Everything. He started designing in 1914. We've done three years of hardcore research. We got 90 designs that Rayner did. No way he built 100 golf courses. He didn't design 100 golf courses. He didn't die in 1925. He died in 1926. So everything there is wrong. And that's a book. That's his, you're going to believe it the first time you read it. We all thought for a long time it was in 19, Rainer died in 1925 until people found the obituary. And I love this photo. This is uh, Seth Rainer's grandniece is still alive. And this is a young Seth Rainer. That's his wife. That's her sister and that's her sister's husband. They were great friends. We're not sure who this woman is. They're, they lived on the east end of Long Island. They used to do what was called, camp, they referred to it as camping. They would go out into the woods, and there were cabins in the woods, and they would spend the weekend there. And the reason Rainer really wanted to go was McDonald was incessant in bothering him. And he would call him at home every day, on weekends, all hours of the night. There were no phones out when they went camping. So he went out in the woods with these people and hung out in his suit and his cigar and stayed away from Charles Blair McDonald. Uh, where to go for information? Really important. We've checked, and there's nothing. That's absolutely not true, unless you've checked. Don't believe it. Um, there's dozens and dozens of, of uh, examples of this where people have told you that they themselves or other people check the attic, check the cellar. We've checked the file cabinets. There's nothing. Get a library card. You may not believe this, but sometimes libraries, for unknown reasons, will have a file on local history. We're not going to get to the histor hist historical society yet. They'll have, they may have that club history you're looking for. They may have uh, the writings of some local guy, like his diary, who turned out to be your member. Who turned out to be a member. The other thing, they, a lot of libraries have ties into ProQuest, which is the newspaper site for the bigger newspapers. It costs a lot to be uh, to get a membership. If you have a library card, uh, where my library has the Hartford Current and the New York Times for free. That's historical papers all the way back to the beginning of both those papers. Check out what your local library has, especially if they're tied in to a regional or, or a statewide uh, uh, library system. 
Visit the morgue, and that's the, that's the name of the place at your local newspaper where they keep the old articles. Um, if it's a good, if it, in the old, in the days of, now you're not doing it because of, um, because of the internet, but there used to be people in newspapers whose job was to clip every single article that ever appeared in the newspaper every day. So there may be a vast amount of information on your golf course, and this is going into the 1990s. So even if your golf course was built in the 70s or 80s or 90s, there may be some really good articles that you can't find online from smaller newspapers that the actual hard copies are sitting in a, in a newspaper somewhere. And don't overlook weekly newspapers or even bi-weeklies or monthly newspapers. That was, in a, the smaller town you are, the smaller papers are gonna cover it because it was big news. Um, there's, a, there's a Devereux Emmett course in a small town in Massachusetts, Webster, Mass, and the, and the Webster Times, which is a weekly, has really good articles about the, the golf course and Alfred Tull built it for Emmett. I, Tull built all his golf courses, which is a good sign that he was there. And they talk about the dimensions of the green and I think Emmett was on site, but, the, but it's found in a weekly newspaper that you can't find online. Absolutely, the local historical society, the amount of information that these places have is, is absolutely mind-boggling. Um, I found a golf course in Essex, Connecticut that lasted for three years. It was six holes, it was connected to a uh, hotel. I got in touch with the Essex Historical Society and they came back to me with a scorecard, six hole scorecard. Um, no matter how small it is, how infrequent you think people go there, how difficult it is to get in touch with them, they can be a treasure trove. And, if, and the other thing is, they usually know if they don't, know, if they don't have stuff where to send you to find information. Uh, websites, we'll get into this, but now uh, more and more newspapers and, and uh, magazines are being digitized. So there's a ton of stuff out there that even is uh, uh, much more vast than it was even five years ago. This is going to kind of contradict the Chantilly rule, but you want to talk to members and see what they know and see if there's a common thread that pops up. The story could be wrong um, in its essence, but, the, but the, the, the wide kind of version of the story may be right. We'll get years wrong when, when architects were on site. We'll get years wrong when um, uh, changes were made. But if you start hearing the same story, there used to be a green over here. You're going to hear 10 different years the green was there, why it was moved. Just kind of keep them in mind, especially the older members. Or, or if you're in a club where there's legacies, the children of older members. And just see if you can form a thread. But that's the least reliable of anything we're going to do. And the ceiling above your desk, I don't know if you know this story, but Mike Manthe at Midland Hills Country Club last year opened up, stuck his hand up in the ceiling above his desk and came up with the irrigation plan for the, Donald, uh, for the Seth Rayner golf course there. And what's really bizarre about this is the, the clubhouse, the, the, uh, the maintenance facility I think is about 40 years old. So this wasn't the original uh, superintendent or head greenkeeper that put it up there somewhere along the line. Somebody found this and put this above his desk and he was sitting around one day uh, in the middle of winter and moved the tile and that's what he came up with. And this is one of my favorite photos I've ever seen. This is a horse-drawn wagon um, working on the 16th green at Fisher's Island. This is the short hole. Uh, creating the contours, we got the guy standing around watching what's going on. This was found in a file in the general manager's office in a filing cabinet. She had been there about 20 years when she found this. The file had nothing to do with architecture or I don't even think the golf course. It said something else, she opened it up and they found about a dozen photos from the construction of the golf course, including this one. So when I tell you that people have said they found things or we've checked everywhere, nobody's checked everywhere until you checked everywhere. All right, I wanna start going through the websites. Uh, this is the really important stuff. Be before I go on, because I don't wanna forget, if you have an older golf course and you're looking for the travels of your people and all of that, there's a website called ancestry.com. It's more for people than for what we're gonna be talking about. 
uh, it's a pay site, but what it has is um, it, it has uh, travel records of people who sailed by ship. So this is how we know where Seth Rayner was in Puerto Rico and um, Hawaii, because they weren't possessions of the United States at the time. He was traveling to a foreign country, so the, that had to be documented. So if you're looking for people going in and out of the country, coming back, uh, maybe some of your members have gone, you think went to visit a Rainer golf course, or went to Havana to visit a Donald Ross golf course, um, Ancestry is the place to start. This is a really good one. This is your tax dollars at work. This is a free website. This is Chronicling America. This is through the Library of Congress. Uh, it's an ongoing project where they're scanning the, um, the microfilm of small newspapers around the country. They're avoiding the large uh, and even medium-sized uh, metropolitan newspapers, and they're scanning the small newspapers, and it's absolutely unbelievable what's there. Uh, the Rutland Herald went live last week, and already they found Walter Travis at another golf course in uh, Vermont. I don't think it exists, but they found Walter Travis there. The, the frustrating thing about it is the years that the newspapers run aren't always the same. I think they're into the 1960s for some newspapers, into the 1940s for others. Um, so you have to keep checking back, and then as they keep adding newspapers, which they don't tell you which ones, newspapers pop up, so you have to just keep checking back. Um, again, it's free. It's pretty easy to use. Um, go to the advanced search on that to make life easier for you. You don't want to deal with this. You can plug in the year. You can plug in the state that you're searching. If you're a course that's anywhere near the border of a state, check the states around you. Um, I, uh, I plugged in uh, 1920 golf in uh, Tennessee. I came up with the Greenville Daily Sun. This is a whole account of how golf is expanding in Tennessee. Uh, and it lists a couple courses that are under construction and who's involved and who the membership is. Um, and that's just one, me just kicking around and seeing what's there because I want to show you guys something that pertains to you. So instantly you have information about golf courses that may, may not exist, but you also have members. That really helps you with um, maybe there's a family history somewhere, maybe there's people that are left and they have stuff kicking around like the plans from uh, New Haven Country Club. Newspapers.com, this is a pay website, but it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, big and small papers around the country. Uh, you're just going to, right here it says add more info. That's going to let you put in the years, the state, and what you're searching for. Uh, this is one that I came up with, just putting that in. Uh, interest in the opening of the country club in Johnson City. Uh, the new clubhouse they talk about in Johnson City. And then they talk about the improvements to the clubhouse over uh, $100,000. And then... Uh, things at the Bristol golf course, whatever that was in Kingsport, um, and what's going on there. Again, that's just one, me just putting in golf, Tennessee, 1920. Um, one thing to remember when you're searching a club, your club may have changed names, and it may have had a, a different name when it opened, very briefly. Uh, see if you can find that out. That will obviously aid in the search. Uh, the name, a lot of times, as you see, they don't call it the, the new home of the country club in Johnson City. I don't even know if it's Johnson City Country Club. So they don't, if you're search searching Johnson City Country Club, it may not pop up. Search Johnson City Golf Links. A lot of times they're talking about uh, a, a new links are being built or the game is being played on new links or improvement to the links. Uh, golf Club, even if you're Country Club, they'll reverse it a lot in newspaper and magazine articles. So look, look up, if you're looking Johnson City, look up Johnson City Golf Club, look up Johnson City Country Club, look up Johnson City Golf, Johnson City Links. I'm trying to think if there's any other missing. 
Uh, this is just like newspapers.com. There's an overlap, but they do have papers that newspapers.com don't have or doesn't have, but it's not, it, not quite as good. But it's worth checking out if you're looking for papers in your area, because they just may have it that, that uh, this, this one has, for me, I was doing some research, well, I'll show you later, Waterbury, Connecticut. They have the Waterbury Republican, which, uh, which I needed to look at, which uh, newspapers.com does not. This is the Haithi Trust. Most people don't know about this. This has got some really um, uh, a wide variety of, of stuff that's going on in there. And, and if you want, just you can get in touch with me after or talk to me after the, the presentation or email me later, and I'll give you all the website names. But they have uh, the, uh, Golfers, Golfers Magazine is in here, which is a publication that ran in the 20s. And it's amazing what the national publications has because they broke stuff out regionally. Golf Illustrated did that. Uh, American Golfer did that, where they'll be talking about stuff that your golf course may be a nine-hole golf course in a small town, and if that's big enough news, then it, then it makes a national publication. So the Haiti Trust is something, just search out, do a search for golf, you'll run into some stuff. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to navigate. This is a really good one, Michigan State University's Turfgrass Information Center. These are all the free publications they have. The big one that's really good is the original Golfdom. Uh, it's a lot of superintendents talking about, it's very few architects, a lot of superintendents talking about what's going on in their golf course. You may find they're talking about uh, weed and pest problems. They may be talking about uh, bunker, bunker work. They may be talking about rebuilding greens. But you can find nuggets in place like, places like this, and this is absolutely one of them. Um, and then the other thing they have that's phenomenal is it's called the Noir Melorganite Collection. There was a guy named O.J. Uh, Noir, who traveled for Melorganite, and as he went, he took photos, and there's thousands of photos. So if he popped into your golf course, because he was selling you guys Melorganite in 1948, he may have photos of your golf course. They may not be great, they may not be everything, but there may be photos of greens, of some tees, a wide view of the golf course that can help you with all kinds of stuff, showing what was there in the 40s, showing how few trees there were, that kind of stuff. But that's a really unknown one, and it's a really good one. Um, i definitely check that out. This is kind of an interesting, not kind of, it's an interesting site. It's one guy in upstate New York who just digitizes all of these small newspapers, mostly in New York. But if people send him stuff, I think he digitizes them. Um, and again, small newspapers covered national stories. So just kick around on this site. It's a bit difficult to search. Um, but this is very good information because there's a lot of newspapers. Don't be surprised to find a Long Island newspaper as a story on your golf course, especially if it's one of those things where Harry Varden and Ted Ray were doing one of their national tours and they stopped in and played at your golf course. You may not find it locally for whatever reason. Some small newspaper in upstate New York or Long Island may have the fact that those guys were on your golf course and talk about yardages of holes, talk about what they shot, uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, this is a pay site, but again, very good. Uh, historical aerials, that's the, that's the uh, front page. You put in your uh, information. What will pop up is that image, and it will show you, click on aerials, how far back they go. That's a 1963 historic aerial of Murfreesboro. Um, and then if you want it, you just purchase from there. They're not expensive for very, uh, high, very, very high resolution uh, digital images. This is an interesting one. You may not think your golf course is involved. Uh, the Olmsted uh, brothers were landscape architects, and a lot of golf courses in the 1920, 1900s and on brought in the Olmsteads to do work on the golf course, uh, to do plantings. Uh, they're most famous for, knowing, for doing things like Mountain Lake and, 
they, the, the, their father did uh, built Central Park. They did Mountain Lake. They did Yeamans Hall. But, but they also went to smaller jobs. The nine-hole golf course in the town where I grew up, I put, put it in. It's Cohasset Country Club. Popped up with the planting plan that they did for the course 10 years, 15 years after it opened. And in one of the planting plans is the golf course. There's a routing of the golf course that shows bunkers, hole, and tee locations. Um, this is a free site. So you would go and put in uh, maybe your club name, maybe the city you're in. Uh, press that. It pops up. It gives you a number of the files. If there is anything, then you come back to there and you search that, and it will take you to the files. Then you have to see what there is, and you get, actually end up getting in touch with uh, the, the research, the National Historic Site, which is in Brookline, Mass., which is where uh, Olmsted had his office, and they'll, uh, they'll send you some great stuff. Uh, online part of this is the Olmsted uh, uh, Flickr archives, where they've digitized maps and drawings. Again, the same kind of thing. This is. Uh, just plug in your, your course name, the town that you're in, um, see, what, you, see what, is, what pops up, and again, you'll be astounded. And I don't know if I can read this. This is a golf course somewhere around here, but this is a 1940s, I'm sorry, I can't, if you guys can read it. This is a 1940s drawing of a uh, Kingswood, Tennessee. This is a plan for the housing project or the, or the real estate. This is a Donald Ross golf course showing the basic routing of the golf course. A few years later, this is the same uh, project, but now J.B. McGovern's name is on this because Ross is on his way out. So it's now become a J.B. McGovern golf course. I'm not saying it isn't a Ross golf course. I'm not getting that argument. Um, it's a J.B. McGovern has taken this over. Ross is going to die within the year, but here's the, here's the original plans and the original routing and the changes with the different names, and that's just me kicking around on Flickr and putting in Tennessee and golf courses. Um, Library of Congress, they've taken what, what wasn't, they've digitized in the last few years all the, all the uh, Olmstead uh, papers, all the, all the correspondence between the clubs that the Olmsteads were working with. They've digitized those. Those are free. You go up top here, plug in, change. It's, it says everything. You want to change it to manuscripts and mixed material. There's also a photos one that doesn't seem to have much on golf. But this is really the, the, uh, the place you want to go. Um, I did that. There's the, there's the uh, golf course we're talking about. And uh, it was the C.P. Edwards somehow involved with Kingsport, Tennessee. There's 92 files that they have. You're going to get a, This is going to pop up uh, with these documents. Uh, this is actually 20 deep on this page. And you're just kind of kicking around. I just happened to click on this one. And there's a letter for J.B. McGovern talking about being on site. Uh, May 21st, 1947, I think he was there. The May 10th, he was on site. So if you're at this golf course, you have a letter and you know that J.B. McGovern, and this took me all of four minutes to find this. I haven't gone through the rest of the stuff for that golf course, but there's J.B. McGovern on site. Um, and, so, and again, it's not just prominent projects like Yeamans and uh, Mount Lake. It's smaller golf courses, nine-hole golf courses, uh, that kind of stuff. So be, be, uh, take a look and see what you can find. It's so the USGA website, uh, Golf Bulletin, Golf Illustrated, The Golfer. Uh, there's some other periodicals. They also have scorecards there. They're really good people. You can find when you do the search, the research tools. You find their, web, uh, their email addresses and just get in touch with them. But for this, if you're looking for your golf course, you click on those, throw your, uh, throw your golf course name in there. I think I threw in uh, Tennessee. I don't know what, 1920, uh, there's Golf Magazine came up. That was the original USGA publication. That's what it looks like. There's a whole, this is, 
This is uh, notes from the South. This is all about golf in, uh, in Tennessee, including this golf course, where they're talking about a golf course that was built um, where the racetrack, horse racetrack was, where the Montgomery Handicaps and the Tennessee Derby was held, and that's all the holes with the yardages and the bogey score, not par score, but the bogey score. So whosoever golf course that is, if they're interested in that, I mean, there's your original holes, there's your original nine holes, and there's your, uh, there's what used to be there before that. The, the notes from the South is actually about five or six pages long. Uh, this came out every month. There was always notes from the South, so you can bump into stuff like that. Again, and that's free. Uh, and I, this is going to show you how things, things kind of go a little um, different directions as you move kind of what you're, what you're not thinking. Farming Berry Hills is a nine-hole golf course in Walcott, Connecticut. Uh, some friends of mine own a um, management company. One of them is a superintendent. The course is owned by Walcott, and they, just, they wanted to make a, a presentation to the town to see if they could take over managing the golf course. Uh, so they hired me to find out what we knew about what we knew about the history of farming Barry Hills, because Walcott, which is a small town, 8,000 people, doesn't know anything about it. So the first thing I do is I go online and I find the 1934 aerial. Connecticut was the first state to, uh, to have aerial photography taken of, its entire, uh, of the entire state. This is a beautiful, beautiful image of the golf course. If we know that from this that everything is essentially where it is today. We know where the greens are, nothing seems to move, maybe some tees. Fantastic, so I can't, we know that for sure. So I'm kicking around and I come up with the fact that it was originally named the Mattituck Club or the Mattituck Country Club. Okay, that's pretty good. Um, we find out that it's William J. Burkowski, sensational Union City amateur. Union City is a name for uh, a town next to Walcott. Be has just turned pro and he's gonna become their first professional. And Robert Pride designed the golf course. Both of these things the club doesn't know. Nobody the club knows. Robert Pride was the father, kind of the father of golf in Connecticut. He, uh, he coached the Yale team. He designed a number of golf courses, including the original New Haven Country Club, not the one that's there now. Uh, he wrote about it. He's, he designed Racebrook, which is, uh, still exists. A number of his courses still exist. Classic came over from Scotland. Uh, the clique mark on the clubs he made was the bulldog head because he coached at Yale, so he, he had his, always had his tie into Yale. So now we know you, William Burkowski's the pro. Hey, that's cool. Okay, we'll move on. We'll keep digging see who we can find. Get in touch with the USGA. There's a Mattituck Country Club scorecard. So now you can actually compare your yardages uh, from 1936. So now you can compare your yardages in 1936 to what you have now and see if much. So, so you're not just trusting your eye in the aerials. You have some numbers to work with. And then this story made national news. Uh, the club went bankrupt, or at least part of it, and one hole in the clubhouse was owned by the bank. So the bank repossessed one hole in the clubhouse. So the members had eight holes to play on. And apparently they kept playing. So that's pretty cool. So then I kind of do some digging around of William Burkowski, and we'll see how William Burkowski is because he was this sensational amateur, young guy, 21, 22 years old when he turns pro. And uh, he's, they're talking about him going on to possibly play in a national amateur tournament. And the story is, is that he worked in a mill in Naugatuck, Connecticut, and he lost a couple of fingers on his right hand, but, and he was a right-handed player, but it didn't affect his game. Uh, he had finished second in the state amateur uh, at Shinnecasa, which I told you about before, and it is spelled correctly there, uh, at Shinnecasa. Um, the guy that he beat was a wealthy uh, industrialist from the southern part of the state, Fairfield County, who then bankrolled uh, Bukowski to let him go out and play in some national events 
and, and to then go on and become pro. So on top of this, I now find out that between Mattituck and Farming Berry Hills, it was called Chase Country Club. When the club went bankrupt, Chase, the Chase Company, which is in nearby Waterbury, came in and bought the golf course and changed it to Chase Country Club. Uh, as it turns out, in the folder for Mattituck was also scorecard for Chase Country Club. So we're looking at yardages now. We're not, we know, the, or I know the years that Chase existed, so we can easily compare the yardages and see how much the course had changed over time. So then I'm still kicking around with Bill Burkowski, and I get Billy Burke get second place in a West Coast tournament. Billy Burke lives in Kentucky, but obviously this is the Hartford Current, so there's a, there's a Connecticut tie-in. Billy Burkowski has now changed his name to Billy Burke while he's out playing the Pro Tour, and he's a pro in, this is 1927, by the way, He's a pro in Lexington, Kentucky. Well, that's pretty interesting. So now I know to look up Billy Burke and not Billy Burkowski, and I throw this up and I get a Wikipedia entry for Billy Burke. Billy Burke won 13 PGA Tour events, including a US Open, and he was on a Ryder Cup team. Nobody at uh, Farmingbury Hills knows that. Nobody, not a single person. Not the older members, nobody in town, nobody runs the golf course. Billy Burke was one of the greatest players of his era. He played in a US Open where they went to two 18 hole, extra 18 holes before he won his, uh, before he won his one US Open over George Von Elm by one stroke. Nobody knows that. So this whole history of this golf course that maybe would get people to go there to be interested in it, to have pride in this golf course, is completely lost. I mean, Billy Burke didn't die until the 70s, and I think he was in Connecticut when he died. So in the last 50 years, this history's been lost. That's Billy Burke holding his US Open trophy. Nobody knows that. The club doesn't have a photo of Billy Burke. There he is. And this is just looking around to find out what we could on the golf course. This isn't a hardcore history about me looking to write a book or anything like that. Uh, this, is just, this is just what you find by digging in. Uh, you, you get led down some roads you didn't even know existed. You find some information that nobody even had a whiff about. Um, and you can find pieces of gold like that. Uh, and it, yeah, so there's Billy Burke. And that's, I don't know how fast I went, I never know, but that's the end of my presentation. Uh, and that's my latest book. If you'd like to purchase my book for me, I can show you how to do that. Uh, Sweetens Cove and Sawani uh, are in, made the top 25. But thank you for having me here. And if you have any questions, please let me know. <clears throat> let me know if you have any questions. Yeah, definitely if anybody has any questions, uh, we have some qu time for questions. And I think a lot of the history of the club you know, it's so interesting. It's something I've really enjoyed in my time at Holston Hills, and a lot of people ask me about Holston. I mean, obviously our course was from 27, so we have a lot of history to look back on, but even a lot of the newer clubs, you know, I think it's interesting if you look at the architect that maybe built something in the 90s or built something in the 80s, you know, still those architects, you can just trace them back to the architects prior. It's not like they came up with something totally new or reinvented the wheel. So to me, that's the most interesting part of history. And, and when we were talking earlier out in the hall, uh, for me, just learning about Holston Hills, when you're going through all this information, you know, you find out all, you know, for us, I find out all kinds of stuff about Knoxville, and then I get off on some sidetrack of, you know, who built this building downtown? What happened to Market Square? You know, when was Nayland Stadium done? Then I'm, you know, off learning all this information, but uh, all that information, I think, is just really interesting to learn. So, I don't know if anybody has any questions they want to throw out, or, there we go. Thank you. Hey, Anthony. Um, have you, in, in, in your research, ever run across any information that, that shows that Donald Ross and Seth Rayner ever 
worked together, knew each other, corresponded back and forth. That's very like funny. That. You inter- in the last month and a half, we've come up with some stuff where they've crossed paths. And every time they crossed paths, Rainer got the job. Um, and a couple of times, it was because Ross didn't return uh, letters. The, I, my, I never understood how Rainer ended up with the Olmsted brothers. Because the Olmsted brothers were in Brookline, Mass., which is very close to where, where Ross was living at the time. The Olmsteads worked at Pinehurst with the Tufts family, right? Tufts, Tufts brought Ross over. So there has to be this connection. And so in 1915, Mountain Lake reaches out to Ross. And something happens where he doesn't, by the time they decide to build the golf course, we have a letter where they're really angry that he is not returning their letters and somehow Rayner gets involved. I think the Rayner, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious that the Rayner connection is the people that are building Mountain Lake, the money, are New York City money. They know McDonald. They probably want McDonald. McDonald doesn't want to build golf courses. He, doesn't want to, he wants to pick and choose. He doesn't want to go down and get involved in this, right? I mean, McDonald did 15 golf courses uh, from the national on, I think it was only 13, two, two before that. Somehow Ross gets involved. The crazy one is Shore Acres in 19, Shore Acres, they, they, the idea for Shore Acres comes up in 1916. 1917, they have a Rainer plan and then everything grinds to a halt because of World War I. Sure, I should add the Shore Acres had a, a, a devastating clubhouse fire, but they had six letters that they found in a, in a, uh, a bank vault. I, I wrote their club history, that's, why, that's how I know all this. They found letters that when they decided to get the club going again in 1919, that somebody suggested that they bring Ross in to look at the property for nothing. And somebody wrote back and said, we should do what they did at Old Elm, because who, Col- Harry Colts at Old Elm, and somehow they brought Ross in. We need to lock, lock them in a room and let them fight it out, is what they said in the letters. Which Old Elm didn't really know that, you know, why is Ross and, it was a, it was a cult routing and Ross built it and it's weird and people love it, it's a cool site, it's a cool club. But after that we never hear anything again, so Rainer gets the job. We know that they cross paths at Country Club at Charleston, Rainer got the job. We know they cross paths at Yeamans Hall, Ross didn't return letters. Um, we know that Ross looked at the site for Blindbrook. We have a newspaper article with him, he's actually quoted. I don't believe he would just be there to comment on the site, that's how the newspaper makes it sound. They wanted McDonald, McDonald took the job. Then according to the small club history, they went to McDonald and said, we're older members, we really don't want the national. And he didn't want any part of building a, a, a dumbed down golf course, so he handed it off to Rainer. That's Rainer's, not really, it's the first golf course Rainer did on his own, but they didn't bunker it until after he left. So I don't consider it a 100% Rainer. But Ross was on that side and Rainer got that job. But never where they worked together or they were in a discussion or, or anything like that. But we do have these things where they kind of cross paths, which is really interesting. Question for anybody? Question, question. I have one question for you. Go ahead. Uh, over the past few years, I mean, there's more and more interest in history and you know, more things to golf architecture. I mean, what do you think was one of the turning points that really got people more into writing club history books, you know, spending more time, you know, looking at the past history of golf? It isn't. It's, it's the opposite of what you think. It's less than it used to be. Um, I, was in, I was in the running to write a club history for a club, and I lost out to a bridge. They decided to build a 100th anniversary bridge rather than, build a, rather than write a history book. If you look at the old... You look at the old clubs, they had 25th, 50th, and 75th history anniversary books. Nobody's doing 100th anniversary books. Clubs are sort of talking about it. 
They're talking about celebrating their 100th anniversary. Um, clubs that started in the 1950s don't have 50th anniversary books. It's a, it's the, the, we're, we're, we're the 100th of 1% that care about this kind of stuff. But this isn't, again, we're not in a vacuum. This is history across all aspects. People don't care about history anymore. They just don't talk about it. They can't tell you anything about their family the way they used to, where the, the lineage of their family, the houses they grew up in, that kind of stuff. People have lost the history of their town. People have lost that. So we're kind of these outliers trying to do our best to hold on to it. And that's why you're going to suddenly, like I said, become the de facto club historian, because most places don't care. I mean, the fact, so Hartford Golf Club, where I showed the, the Wimet article, when Hartford Golf Club opened in 1896, it was one of the premier golf clubs in the United States. They built nine holes, and within a year, they had 18 holes, because golf grew so much. They moved a few years in the 20s, I think, late, no, 1916, they moved. Ross built a golf course. They were on two sides of a, a dirt road. They, 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 expanded to, they expanded the course. Emmett came in. They moved the holes all to the, this is over a 30-year period. Ross came back. They did the whole thing. They've hosted a USGA Mid-Am. Uh, Spider Miller won it. And they hosted a USGA Girls Junior, Lexi Thompson's only USGA title. So they have quite a lineage. They're, they had a history book written in 1996, and I caddy there, so if this gets back to people, it's garbage. It's an absolute garbage history book that didn't touch on anything that went along with that, with that golf course and how, how important they were at the time. I understand in 1995 when this guy was writing it that he didn't have digitized stuff, but there's a lot of avenues that he could have gone down that he didn't go to. He didn't go to the USGA Museum. He didn't get his car and drive three hours to the USGA Museum. People don't care. And, and, and so when you come to these clubs and go, look what I have for you. Look at this stuff you should have on your website. You know, Hartford's trying to get members like everybody else. How about, how about you create a page about your history and talk about who's played there? There's an unbelievable article about Harry Varden playing there. The Hartford Current did it, where they describe what Varden is wearing. It's the best article I've ever, the only article I've ever seen about this. He had a, he had a pink and white striped shirt. He had olive pants, olive socks. I think he had tan shoes and a tan cap. I mean, how is that not on the Hartford Golf Club website if you're trying to get members to create this? Look at, yeah, we had the 90, was it 96 Mid-Am? They had the 2008, you know, US. People don't care. They, and I've talked to members about it. They don't care. So you guys are the outliers. You guys are the few people. Find the members that, see if you can find the members that care. But we're kind of holding up the fort until everybody else catches up with us, I think if they ever do. I'm hoping history repeats itself and people start to care. Sure. But the fact that there's these prominent clubs that have these phenomenal histories at 25, 50, and 75 that aren't doing 100th anniversary books, just amazing. Well, following that answer, I know I uh, graduated college in May of 95, played college golf, and then went to work at the honors course and really didn't know much about golf courses at the time, and then had the good fortune of getting the job at Cherokee Country Club in Knoxville in 97. And when I started there, they thought it was a Ross course. They weren't really sure. Right. And I didn't know if it was important or not. Uh, you know, and there was this period of time where folks just butchered classic golf courses, and now there's a resurgence right. to restore them. So why do you think, if people don't care about history, why we have such a resurgence of restoration and people like Chris Spence behind me that are right. doing such great work. And I, I think what it is is an appreciation for the golden era architecture. I think it's an appreciation for the golf course. But we say that, and again, we're in a microcosm. How many courses 
that you know of that have been messed with that they're not putting back. I mean, it's great that they're doing all of this work, and I'm not, not telling them not to, but look at all the golf courses that are being messed with. I mean, that they're not turning around saying, we should really create what used to be there. And I don't mean PGA Tour courses, that kind of stuff. But there are the few, but think even, I, I, can't, I'm not, I don't know this area, but think about the courses in this area that maybe haven't been put back or should be put back. And the, the other thing is, I didn't touch on this, is these, these courses that pretend to be somebody else, that's a perfect example of how people disregard history. Um, Minnesota Valley in Minnesota claims they're Seth Rainer golf course. I don't care if they are or they aren't, right? I mean, I, they are, that's great. They don't have a shred of evidence. We've done so much research on them, but the story is, the oral history is that Seth Rainer was there when Seth Rainer was working at Midland Hills, and Ralph Barton, who taught at University of Minnesota, worked for Rainer and built courses for Rainer and traveled with him to Yale. They can't tell you, they can't prove that to you. So, I mean, if people, you know, they want to be a Rainer so they can sell. The, the, the craziest one, though, is uh, there's an 18 hole municipal course, Lake Wales, Florida, that was built by Seth Rainer. It's down the road from Mountain Lake. And when Mountain Lake opened, the, it, we're, our best guess is some of the members, we know members were involved, probably wanted Lake Wales, which is a growing town, to have a golf course. So they sold some land to them at discount. They probably hired Seth Rayner. Right? For years, for years, it was thought to be a Donald Ross golf course. Right, Lake Wales Country Club. And people thought it was a Donald Ross because there's a plan from a nearby course that wasn't something like this. When papers started getting digitized, all of a sudden the Rayner name pops up. Right? We know that it's Rayner. We have them on site. We have reams of articles. We have them talking about it when the first nine opened in 25, 26. We have the, yeah, 25. We have the second nine opening the next year saying it's Rainer. The people that own the golf course refuse to believe it's a Seth Rainer golf course and have Donald Ross silhouette stickers on the, on the golf carts because they think Rainer sells, that Ross sells better than Rainer. Now, most of the golf courses have been lost. The greens have been lost. Some holes have been lost, but the corridors are there. You can see the width. It's a beautiful piece of land. You can see the width. You can see where some original bunkers were. They don't want to talk about it. They don't care about history. They care about selling their golf course, and they think Ross sells more than Rainer. And there's not a, I mean, the Donald Ross Society has come back and said, yeah, you're right. Because they, again, they don't care. They just want to be accurate. I just want to get this right. I don't care if you're a Rainer golf course or not. And so they don't care. And so there's those people that do want, that do care, and think about the clubs that do it, right? How many people in those clubs are part of the restoration? Chris, I, I talked to one architect. He wants 10 guys. He wants 10 guys, do you agree with that, to restore a golf course that have some say in the club and they can get to their different groups. It's not 100 people that, ever wanted, that I found that want to restore the golf course. It's 10 movers and shakers that get it. And then people just kind of go along with it. So again, I did, we're few and far between. And, you can come up with facts and it's not going to matter. That's the most frustrating part, is to come up with facts and people don't believe what you found because it tells a story they don't want to hear. Question, anybody else? Yeah, I thought it was interesting just when you were saying that about history in general. Uh, yeah, that's one thing even myself, looking back years ago, I didn't really think that much about my family history. Now that I've spent more time doing stuff at the golf course, it kind of got me a little bit involved and in, you know, looking at things in my family. and. Uh, like a lot of people when they get older, you know, I started thinking about things with my parents and different things going on and 
as I was trying to come up with a Christmas gift for him this year, you know, two days before Christmas, like always, I came across a great website where I could set up things for my dad, where I send him questions every week. It goes on for a year. He answers all these questions. It's all put together. At the end of the year, I have a bound book, hopefully it'll be a history, but man, he loves it. He thinks it was the best thing ever. You know, I'm trying to come up with a gift at the last minute, uh, but it's great just how technology has really helped. and. I know working with Chris um, first at Cherokee, it was so hard to finding this information. I mean, you literally were <laughs> looking at the old newspaper. It was horrible. Right. And that's something that I kind of throw to you. I mean, you know, you talk to some, but just how much better it is now to try to. Yeah, I mean, when you go to the li some of these papers that have been digitized, when you go to the library, they're on microfilm, and you got to sit down and kind of, if you think you know your opening date, you kind of kick around and look through the microfilm around then. I always, if. If I find the construction's 1916, I start looking in 1915 because that's when the money people will be talking about it. You know, the people that have the money behind the golf course. And then you kind of follow it after, and, but you're just, it's random. I mean, it's blurry. We talk, I, four, I said four hours and my eyes cross, and I have to go home at that point. But sometimes that's what, but it, this has all been lost, you know, and that's, if you want to do it, you can do it. You're going to go down a rabbit hole. You'll find it, you know this, right? You start off, you find one thing, it's four hours later and you're on a tangent you didn't know about and you find all this good information, you hit this little vein of gold and you find this great stuff. You know, and, and I don't know what you have here for aerials, but you, you, you guys would know better, but TVA you said was out here so that you might be on some TVA aerials. You know, who knows what the state did, who knows what the counties did. In, in New York, it turns out in Long Island, the counties, the counties started taking aerial photographs. Uh, one of the counties is in 1924, which is a biplane at 5,000 feet. To give you an idea, going back and forth, with rolling film and then stitching it together, and they so they have 1924 aerials. So you look around for that kind of stuff, but it's all it's all that kind of work, and it's all little pieces of stuff, and people are going to think you're crazy and not understand why you're doing it. I mean, club members. I don't mean your family. Your families, they they won't get it at all. But club members are not going to understand why you're doing what you're doing because they don't care, you know. All right. Well, nobody else has any questions. We appreciate your talk, and yeah, it was great. Thank you very much. There you have it, guys. Thanks for listening to Mr. Anthony Piapi give a talk at the 2020 Tennessee Turfgrass Conference and Show on uncovering the architectural history of your club and golf course. Great stuff from him. Uh, go check him out um, and really uh, – Tell him uh, that you enjoyed this talk. This talk uh, is great that I uh, was able to capture that and uh, live on here at the under the making the turn. So thanks to him for allowing me to record that and um, it was great stuff. So that's it for the episode, man. Guys, appreciate you listening. Appreciate you joining. Please go uh, rate, share, subscribe, all those things. Follow us on Twitter and um, appreciate, appreciate you uh, listening in. Uh, until next time, I'm BJ Parker and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>